Uh, the, the title of this message is the same as last week, Have a wonder, Wonderful Christmas. And my, my thought is, let's fill Christmas and our thoughts of Christmas with the wonder that really is there that we often overlook. So have a wonder-filled Christmas is the thought. Um, last week, we looked at uh, some Old Testament prophecies and the ark coming from 2 Samuel when Nathan received a, a revelation to David that David was at the time in his kingdom when he had rest from all of his enemies and he was talking to Nathan about building the temple, a, a house for God. And Nathan encouraged him to do that and went out and God spoke to Nathan this message for David. And it's a covenant that God made with David saying, um, I took you from the sheepfold and made you king over Israel. And I made you a house and you are here thinking to make me a house. And have I ever mentioned that I needed a house? But I, I promise you, David, that I will give you a house. Your son after you will build this house that you want to build. And I will make you an enduring royal dynasty in Israel. You will have a ruler on the throne forever. And that's the beginning of the Ark of the Davidic Covenant. And we saw, uh, and we'll get to it a little bit later, because we'll start there as we look at some more in the Old Testament. We come forward 240 years to Ahaz, Uzziah, and then Jotham, and then Ahaz. Uzziah was a good king until the end. And then he went into the temple to try and offer incense, and God struck him with leprosy. Jotham, his son, was a good king. Ahaz, Jotham's son, not a good king. And there's this prophecy that um, God, God tries to encourage him with the situation that God was going to be with him and take care of him, but Ahaz was having none of that. And then God gives this other prophecy that a, a virgin will bear a child, will conceive and bear a child, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which will... We'll look at again this morning. But that's spoken, if you will look at the pronouns, to the house of David, not to Ahaz in particular. And then we took a look at the angel coming to Mary and Mary taking all this in and making this statement, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. And um, I meant to say last week, and I didn't have an opportunity, and I don't see her here. She's probably too afraid to be here. But Mary is right about the age of Adriana Marinesi. Maybe a little bit older. It's a, it's a young maiden, a virgin, just come through puberty. That's the marrying age in, in this culture. So she's like 14, 15, somewhere in there. And the angel of the Lord comes to her saying, well, the Lord wants you to bear Messiah. You're a virgin. You're going to conceive and bear a son. You're betrothed. And, you know, all the implications of that. Is she going to get stoned to death? Is Joseph going to reject her? And she makes this statement, Behold the bondslave of the Lord. Let it be to you as you have said. Let it be unto me as you have said. And then we, we looked at Joseph, and Joseph was obviously upset that his betrothed wife yet to consummate the marriage, is now pregnant because she went away to be with 
Elizabeth for Elizabeth's third trimester and her first trimester. So she came back and it's kind of obvious that something's happened here. And then the angel comes in a dream and talks to Joseph and reminds Joseph of this prophecy that we're going to end up starting with this morning after we look at where the story goes with Mary and Joseph. And um, he takes her to be his wife. He accepts what's, what she had told him. He, she, he accepts the testimony of the angel. And they go on together as a couple. So in Luke chapter 2... We pick up the story. Luke chapter 2, verse, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. And that word first is proton, which means first in order. So it's probably the census prior to Quirinius's reign. Um, actually decreed by Caesar Augustus in 6 BC. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up um, from Galilee, which is in the northern tribes, out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So when these censuses happened, you went back to your ancestral home and registered there. Uh, and he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought first her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger because there was no room for them at the inn. So I, I was curious and I went to Google and I looked up Nazareth and I looked up Bethlehem. And I said, okay, if I'm walking, because at best they were probably walking, maybe they had a, a donkey, right? And they always show Mary riding on a donkey, but the reality of the culture is that Joseph would be riding on the donkey. Maybe he was nice to his wife and she did ride on the donkey, I don't know. Um, but that walking journey is a journey of 90 miles. It's 31 hours of walking. Now, ladies, think about this. You're in your third trimester, and we have to go register because Caesar said you need to register. And there's implications of that as you ponder it with respect to our current culture. And they go on a journey walking from Nazareth in the northern kingdom down to Bethlehem near Jerusalem, 31 hours of walking. Obviously, it wasn't 31 hours in one single stint, and it's up and down the hills and valleys of, of Israel. Not an easy journey. So Mary's decision already starts to have implications in her life. And the really interesting thing about this fact is that God moved the ruling Gentile power in the world that was in authority oppressing Israel to make sure that his son got registered in history as a birth. And it's really important because when we come to one of the prophecies in Micah, that's where he has to be born. They're living up in the northern kingdom, but Messiah in the Old Testament comes out of Bethlehem. 
out of the house of David, not just the lineage, but literally. And interestingly, as you look more and more at these prophecies, and as I look and study the scriptures over the course of my life with Christ, more and more and more, I see that God is literally fulfilling his word. Not figure, not, not hand-waving, but literal. And then it goes on from here how um, the child is her heralded, and Max, you spoke about this on Christmas Eve, right? How the, the shepherds are out in the fields, and the angel of the Lord appears, and then the Shekinah glory appears, and it says a multitude of the heavenly host. The interesting thought in that is, well, that word fullness, that, that word multitude comes from the term fullness, so that all of the hosts of heaven appear, and the, angel, the uh, shepherds are quaking, and he gives this um, prophecy. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill among men. So the, uh, the child that is born is the peace offering. If you will, when God invades the battlefield of the earth, he sends a child. And we want to look at who this child is. So I'm not going to go into all of that passage. I just wanted to highlight those couple of thoughts. And let's go back to the Old Testament, to Micah chapter um, 5 and verse 2. When the wise men come later, about two years later, they stop in Jerusalem. They talk to Herod, and Herod asks the rabbis and the priests, where is Messiah going to be born? And they quote this passage. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata... Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. I'm going to stop there. Bethlehem was the smallest grouping in Judah. He's little, and that's the, the statement here. Though you're insignificant in Judah, out of you is going to come the one to be ruler in Israel. So David was taken from the sheepfold. He's on the bottom rung of the social ladder. He's the youngest of Jesse's sons, and he's raised up to be king over Israel. And now the, this little tribe is going to have a new ruler come that has been promised to David in the Davidic covenant. The one to be ruler in Israel. And then there's this really interesting statement. It says, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Literally, this is goings forth, or his origins are from of old, from everlasting, from antiquity, from eternity. Is the literal meaning there. So this child, there's something really different about this child. Eternally different. And that's the, first, the prophecy out of Micah, which is, he's a contemporary of Isaiah later in Isaiah's life. So let's go back to where we started last time with um, Isaiah chapter 7. If you remember this passage, Isaiah went with his son, whose name was a remnant will, will return, and he goes to the fuller's field where Isaiah is, and he gives this prophecy. He offers Ahaz, a deal. God says, don't be concerned about the northern kingdom and, and Syria who have aligned 
to, to force you into this alliance against the king of Assyria who's rising, right? I will be with you. Now, choose a sign, whether it's in Sheol or whether it's in the heavens above, so that you will know that I am with you. Make it a great sign. And Ahaz's response will, oh, I'm not going to tempt the Lord, which sounds very pious, but the problem was he was already starting an alliance with the king of Assyria, and he didn't want God involved, overthrowing his alliance. And then this passage, as he's telling, as he's speaking with Isaiah, Isaiah says, now hear this, O house of David, and the pronouns change. So he stops speaking to Ahaz, and he's speaking to the whole house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but you, will you also weary my God? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is the promise, Isaiah 7, 14. God himself will give you, house of David, this sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the sense of which Ahaz was probably thinking about this is that God is with us, like God was in the tent of meeting and he's going to go up with us into Canaan and give us the land. He's here. But there's a different sense here that we'll see as we look through what this God with us is. Now, let's talk about this child because the child is promised. And in Luke, the child is born. And, and Mary and Joseph wrapped him in swaddling clothes, right? They, they had strips of cloth. They bound him up like a little mummy and laid him in a feeding trough for the animals because that's the only bed that there was in the manger, in, in the place where they were. The manger is the feeding trough. And I, I, just a side note, I had an interesting thought that in their culture... Life and death are very much the same. The baby is born and wrapped in swaddling cloths, all bound up like a little mummy. Because you know, even in our day, they take the, the baby in the hospital and they wrap, wrap him up tightly in a blanket like a little cocoon, and the baby is content in that. So we have something very similar back there. But then at the end of life, when they, they're dead, they do the same thing. So when the shepherds came and saw this child in the feeding trough of the lambs, it represents not only the beginning of life, but the end of life. So what about this child? Well, if you remember last week, I mentioned a little bit, one chapter over in chapter 8, there's this very much parallel um, promise to Ahaz of, of a son yet to be born to Isaiah. And it's a promise of judgment that the land's going to be run over. And I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but I want to get and look at, because there's this statement out of the blue in verse 8. So there's, there's a, a, a passage of judgment to Ahaz that the king of Assyria is going to come in and flood the land Right? He's going to overflow his banks at the end of verse 7. And then verse 8, he will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass through. He will reach up to the neck and the stretching out of his wings 
and will fill the, ble- the breath of, and then there's this phrase, your land, O Emmanuel. Now, the land was not Ahaz's. It wasn't David's. It wasn't even Abraham. If you look at the law, the land was always God's. I mean, that's why the whole thing with the Sabbath of the land sent Israel into exile because after 77s, God said, that's enough. You're going into exile and the land, my land is going to have its rests. So for 490 years, they had ignored the Sabbath every seventh year rest of the land. And God said, you're going to go away until all of those Sabbaths are fulfilled. And then you can come back. And Jeremiah wrote about it. And Daniel saw it and prayed about coming back in the land. And then Daniel was given another prophecy of 77s. It's like the angel came and Daniel was talking about You know, the 70 years are already up and the angel's like, no, 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 I don't want to talk about the past. I'm going to tell you about the future. A different 70. So in this phrase, your land, O Emmanuel, is another tip of the hat that Emmanuel is way beyond just a human being because the land is owned by God. And here, the ownership of the land is attributed to Emmanuel. And then we go over another chapter to Isaiah chapter 9, and it gets even more interesting. And there, it starts out, chapter 9 is talking about it coming out of Galilee, right? And um, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of shadow and death, upon them a light has shined, in verse 2, which is not up on the screen, but verse 6 says to us, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now there's an interesting back and forth in this passage. So unto us a child, which is very human, is born. Unto us a son, the son is Emmanuel, he is God with us. So there's a statement of divine. And then it flip-flops, And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful is a word that's only used for God. And it could be just wonder of a counselor. A counselor is something that all kings had. Very common. David had counselors. Solomon had counselors. Um... Solomon's son had two kinds of counselors. The older counselors he ignored and followed the young counselors. And then there was a split in the kingdoms because he did that. So it's not only a counselor, but it's a wonder counselor or a wonder of a counselor or a wonderful counselor. There's a a melding of divine and human together in this title. And then the next one, mighty God. Mighty is a very human term. But El, it's El Gabor. Gabor being mighty, El is God's name. All through Isaiah, El is only used for the God of Israel. So he is mighty God, this child. And he is everlasting father. Or literally father of eternities. 
Again, human and divine mixed in one title. And finally, Prince of Peace, Shar Shalom. And it's very fitting that this is the last one because he comes as the shalom offering of God. He is our peace. He is the Prince of Peace as a child. Eventually, he'll be the King of Peace. And then it goes on from there of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It will be forever. Upon the throne of David and over the kingdom, back to the Davidic covenant, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, so he's talking about a time still future, from that time forward even forevermore. So this child will live forevermore. He will rule forevermore. His justice in this kingdom will fulfill the Davidic covenant. And then the final phrase, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You think if God sets his mind to doing something, any of us can change his mind, change his path, change his work, And then the ark in Isaiah always has its climax in the 53rd chapter. So let's turn there for a bit. Now, the, I mean, there's several sermons in the 53rd chapter. I just want to note a couple of things. At this point, he's called my servant, my bond slave, my Iber. In verse 4, this will take it from 5, but verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was cast out. He was, you know, going up to the cross. What has he done? He's done something horrible. He's going to be hung on a tree. And that was the standpoint of the Jewish people. But Isaiah tells us he was wounded for our transgressions, the things that we did. He was bruised for our iniquities, another word for sin. The chastisement of our peace, or the chastisement that brings peace, was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And then it speaks of our condition. Not only are we in transgression and in iniquity and deserving of chastisement and stripes, but all we like sheep, not the brightest animals in the barnyard, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, my servant, the iniquity of us all. How does a sheep go astray? One blade of grass at a time. Just a little, just a little. I can't move too far because Jonathan's going to get upset with me. Right? One blade of a grass at a time, and now he's, the, this little lamb is no longer with the flock and exposed to all the danger. Except that one blade of grass is one step away from God and another step away from God and another step away from God. 
we have turned from his way to our own way. He, the servant, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. There's a temple imagery, if there isn't, ever was one. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, then he, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison. Incidentally, have you ever noticed that when he was brought to trial with the Sanhedrin, he didn't answer? They brought all the witnesses. He didn't answer. He kept his mouth shut until the high priest adjured him by God to answer, are you the Messiah? And then he answered with Daniel's prophecy of the coming son of man and the high priest tore his, tore his robe. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who will declare his generations? How is he going to have offspring? How is he going to be an eternal king? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He died. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He died for the transgressions of my people. In this context, it's the Jewish people. And they made his grave with the wicked crucified between two thieves, but with the rich in Joseph of Arimathea's grave at his death, because he had done, so, done no violence, nor was, his, was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, that's the guilt offering for sin in Leviticus, he will see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He shall see the labor of, he, God, shall see the labor of his, the, the servant's soul, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Acquit them. Now, interestingly, this passage was written by Isaiah more than 600 years before the angel came to talk with Mary. Show this to a Jewish person. If they don't understand the context of it, they'll, they'll get angry with you like, I don't want to read your New Testament. Oh, it's not my New Testament. It's your Hebrew scriptures out of Isaiah. And the father was satisfied with the offering he made. Now there's Old Testament witnesses that we just talked about. We talked about Nathan's witness to David. We talked about Isaiah's witness in several places. Incidentally, Isaiah is also known as the book of Emmanuel. There's a lot, here, a lot more here that we could talk about. We talked about the Old Testament of Micah. Several prophecies all fulfilled in Yeshua of Nazareth. Let's look at what the New Testament authors say about this very interesting child. Let's start in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. So before I open this passage, um, I want to make a statement about the Greek language. Our language has both definite and indefinite articles. The boy, 
versus a boy. The Greek language has a definite article and it has an anarthrous condition. There's no article shown. And in the concept of Greek, when the definite article is, is said, it's talking about something concrete like the plant, right? When it talks with the anarthrous, when there isn't a definite article, it's all the qualities of this plant. It's talking about the essence and nature of that plant. So in this passage, in the beginning, this is back in Genesis. That's the beginning. In the beginning, the word, this halagos or holagos, uh, in the Aramaic it could be memra. In the Hebrew it could be amer. It's the concept that John, John is using to talk to the Greek, the logos, the reasoning, the speech, right? The word was. So you go back to the beginning, back to Genesis, and before that is the word. And the word was with the God. So this thing that he's talking about, this person, the word, the word of God, was with another being, the God. Like this is the son with the father. And the word was God. No, the. So the quality, there's an equation of the word having all the qualities, the essence and nature of the God. He was in the beginning with God. So there's two persons there. They both have the same essence and nature, but they're not equated to be each other. And he goes on to talk about this word. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. So this, the word, made all of the things. Positive statement. And then a negative statement. And without him, nothing that was made or created was made or created. So he is the agent of all of the creation being created. And all of that was by him and there was nothing other than, than what he created, created. Interesting, this, this is a great verse to take the Jehovah Witnesses to or any other Arians in your life because the Jehovah Witnesses have not twisted this verse in their, in their scripture, at least as my last encounter with them. In him was the light of life, and the life was the light of men. So in him was life, just like in God is life. In us, we don't have life in and of ourselves. God breathed into us the breath of life. This one has life in him. This is the child that we're talking about. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness was not, was not did not uh, comprehend it or overcome it. And then look, drop down to verse 14, because there's another very interesting thing. And the word, so here we are talking about this eternal God being with God the Father. The word became flesh. 
and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, the monogenes, the one and only Son. We are not the Son of God, we are adopted sons and daughters of God. Full of grace and truth. So this word became flesh in a manger in Bethlehem. The son of Mary, Yeshua ben Elohim, as one psalmist in our day says, which I find very interesting. So John, a New Testament witness, who was there, who did see the glory of God on the Mount of Transfiguration, testifies to him as an eternal being, yet made flesh. Let's look at another passage in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past, to the fathers by the prophets, that's your whole Hebrew Bible, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, who he has appointed heir of all things. So Jesus is the one destined to inherit all the things he created. Through whom he made the worlds. And I found this really interesting because the... it. it the English translates it to the, the term, the worlds, but the, comma, the con, concept in the Greek is Ionos, it's the ages. He is the one who created time itself and the successive ages of time. Who being the brightness of his glory, so the sun is the brightness of God's glory, that is the radiance of God's glory. He is like the Shekinah itself of God's glory and the express image of his person. He is the exact representation or the impress, the exact likeness of God's person. And that speaks to essence and nature there. And upholding all things by the word of, the, of his power, he is the one who holds creation together. He, the son, this son that was sent, when he had by himself purged our sins, washed away our sins, cleansed our sins. This is like Isaiah right here. He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Witness number two of, this, of the New Testament. The author of Hebrews, we don't know who this was. There's lots of debate. I don't think it was Paul. Some do. Second witness, alongside of the three Old Testament witnesses, and the last, the last exposition and comment that I want to make before closing is on Philippians chapter two. So in Philippians chapter two, when God is talking about exhorting us, Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul is exhorting us. He says, let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. So we're supposed to have this same 
frame of reference, approach to life, the same mindset that Christ had. And what mindset did Christ have? Who being in the form of God? Again, this is a statement of that the word there for form is morpho. We get morphology, which is the study of the forms of, and structures of nature. It, it, it deals with the essence and nature of a thing. So he is in the form of God, the essence and nature of God. He did not consider it robbery or something to be grasped and held on to. What did he consider not to be robbery? To be equal with God, or literally to be equally, because it's an adverb, equally God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Lots of debate about the word there. He emptied himself and took upon him the morphe of a bond slave. And he came in the likeness of men. Now, a lot of people twist what God, what Christ emptied himself of. There's like five different positions. He did not empty himself of being God. He did not empty himself of his glory. In, in Bible college, it would be the position that I was taught is that he gave up the independent exercise of all his divine attributes. That's a good way to look at it. And if you look at his life, there are times when he exercised his divinity. He knew things that he could not have known. But it was all under the rule of the Father. And at the end in, in John 17 when he prayed, he says, I have done all things that you have told me to do. I have completed the work. So his essence in his walk with respect to God the Father was to be under his authority, to be God the Father's bond slave. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And he came in the likeness of men. And I, the, Paul is so delicate in the way he wor words things because he didn't come in, in an image like me because I'm a sinful human being. After Adam sinned, every human being born in all of history, save the child that we're talking about, is born with a sin nature. So he came in this likeness, but not entirely the same because he was without sin. And being found in the appearance as a man. So if you interacted with him, as a child, he would be just like a human child. They fed him, he pooped, they cleaned him. He ran around as a little kid playing. He had to learn how to be a carpenter from Joseph. I'm sure that Mary and Joseph taught him the, the pieces of the Hebrew scripture that they knew because they didn't have it, a scroll of, of the Bible, the, the Hebrew scriptures in their home. Nobody did. 
It was all memory work. Would, would it, what would it be like if we memorized all kinds of scripture? Hmm. Let this mind be in you as it was in Christ Jesus. And he, became, he humbled himself under God and he became obedient to the point of death even the death on the cross. He became a curse for us because anyone who hangs on a tree is a curse. He became obedient to fulfill all of Isaiah 53. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Yeshua every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. That's the entire created order. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, God the Father, that Yeshua HaMashiach is Adonai. Now it's interesting, that's not entirely fulfilled yet is still future for us even as it was future for Paul and there will come a day when absolutely every created being will bow the knee before Christ that is the government that he will rule forever and ever and ever and ever the question is are you going to bow to him here in this life or are you going to be forced to take a knee at his throne judgment. So I just want to close with one more passage because it's relevant for today in a couple of comments. This is the, the we're going to go back to John chapter 3. This is the most well-known Bible verse in the world. For God so loved the world, literally in this way God loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, the monogenes, that whoever, whoever, it's wide open, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's an open invitation that if you trust Christ, you will have everlasting life. But note what it says after this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And here's the kicker. He who believes in him is not condemned. There's the offer. Believe and you're out of condemnation. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, we're all born in, in rebellion to God. We are at enmity with God. There is none who does good, no, not one. The Old Testament, there is not a righteous man in the earth who does good and does not sin. 
And sin is open rebellion against God. You need to understand who this child is and what he went on to do. He is the servant of Isaiah 53. He is the one who takes, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he takes away the sin of all those who believe that he did that for them. And all those who do not believe can go and pay the debt themselves. An infinite offense to an infinite God. Which camp are you in? Today, you can change camp. Come to Christ. And for those of us who are already in the camp of Messiah, is this mind in you that I'm going to be his bond slave? That I'm going to be living the life he wants me to live? That he's planned for me instead of what I'm planning for me? You want a ride that's exhilarating? Let God be your pilot. If you're the pilot and God's the co-pilot, you're in the wrong seat. He has set you to be a light in the world. To be His hands. To be His feet. To be a mouth that He controls. You have access to people I, to talk to that I will never have access to. This is a wonderful salt shaker. You are the salt of the earth. It doesn't do any good in the salt shaker. Go out there and be salty. 